What moves you? And I want you to understand, hear everything I'm saying in that context. That the goal of this message and the goal of what I'm saying and what I'm driving at is the ultimate question of what, what really moves you in your life? What is your prime motivator? What is getting you up in the morning? What gets you to do what you do? What moves you? In Matthew 6, starting in verse 19, this is what he says to us. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you get that? This isn't uh, Gandhi speaking here, guys. This is Jesus, the creator of the universe. This isn't some wise snippet that you can put on a meme and post on social media. This was Jesus speaking to the heart of humanity, and he's saying, for where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. He's saying, here's a clear benchmark, a clear indicator for you where your heart is, no matter how much you, you say something, what truly tells you where your heart is, is where your treasure is, the things you value most. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. This is common sense stuff he's saying. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Again, clear point, right? Like, hey, if what is in you is dark, but you're calling it light, then how dark is your darkness? You see what he's saying there? He's saying the standard of what you're using to decide what is true is critical, it's relevant, it's important. And then he goes on to say this, no one can serve two masters. No one can have two treasure locations. No one can have equal but opposite value systems. Here, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Now, why is it so black and white? Because you can't be divided on what you value most. The word most is singular, right? It's like people when they say, oh, I have a bunch of best friends. No, you don't. You have a bunch of good friends and you can't decide which one's your best. That's how the word best works. This entire most recent generation loves to redefine words to avoid the hard decisions. But words mean what they mean. Best means best. Right? The, where your treasure is, what you value most, means most. There can be no competition for most. Your heart is going to be with whatever you value most. And if you have things you value a ton, you're going to have to decide which one you value most. Because doing one is going to take time away from doing the other. Investing into one is going to take stuff you could have invested into the other. And Jesus is saying, you can't serve two masters. If I tell you to do something, but this thing over here tells you to do something, you're going to have to choose, and that choosing needs to be based on which one is your master. We have to come to terms with what actually moves us. And he finishes this by saying... You cannot serve both God and money. 
Now, why would Jesus pick that one thing out of everything he could have picked to put as the prime competition against God for where your treasure lies? Maybe it's because as both God and human, he knows what the prime mover is for humans apart from God. Now, I've been thinking about this a little bit, and when we think in our culture, first world, super abundant, everyone in America lives as kings compared to the rest of the world, we feel like the primary drive for us for money is almost always out of a place of greed or fear or a sense of need that goes far beyond understanding what what need looks like to to the majority of the rest of the world, right? And all throughout human history, the primary motivation for most humans was survival. This is how people like Darwin and and other uh, evolutionists came up with the idea. Because they say the most common trend in humans from the very beginning is survival. That's the survival instinct. They will do whatever it takes to survive. They will kill, steal, murder enemies, but also relatives if they have to for their own survival. Because survival was always the greatest need. And in any agricultural world, well beyond the Industrial Revolution happened, when, when literally if you couldn't grow your own food, you better have something of value you could barter for that food. Or else you'd be dead. You would starve to death. Because their food didn't show up in supermarkets sealed and frozen for you. They had to have skills of hunting. And then that hunting took luck that there was animals you could eat around or being able to grow and farm your own food took the skill to know how to do that. And if you didn't have that skill, you were going to die. Jesus says this, no man can serve two masters. You either serve God or money. And that money meaning the thing we feel we need most. Well, look at what he goes on to say. In absolute defiance to the survival instinct, he says this, therefore, I tell you, since, since I just made this audacious claim that you can't serve both God and money, only one can be the master, only one can be the motivator, only one can be your prime mover, he says this, therefore, with that in mind, I tell you this, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink, the two prerequisites to staying alive. And don't worry about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than them? He's asking questions to get the people to think. Aren't you worth more than them? And your heavenly Father takes care of them. Can any of you add one moment to your lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. And if that's how God clothed the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? Do you see how he stepped it up a notch? First, look, look at the birds. Your father takes care of them. Aren't you more important than them? Look at the flowers of the field. Look how well your father takes care of them. Aren't you more important than them? And then he finishes with this. 
you of little faith. He's talking to people he knows are struggling with believing any of this. So don't worry. Here comes the, the, the edict from the king of kings. So don't worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles, those who don't have the hope we have, those who don't have the assurance we have, those who don't have the Father who provides for them that we have, they eagerly seek after all these things. It is their prime motivation. It is what moves them. And your Father knows that you need them. So with all this knowledge, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This passage should be like tattooed to the chest of every American Christian. So that every day when you wake up and look in the mirror, there's just a blank reminder that God is talking to us of little faith saying, stop it. Saying, you either believe I am who I say I am and that I will do what I say I do, or you don't. Your actions today will tell me what it is. How you choose to live your day will tell me whether you believe me or you don't. And as I was thinking about this, and this has been a question I've asked myself my whole life, right? As someone who's from, from a young age, from the moment I got saved 19, who had this strong ambition, desire, and belief that I need to be, I need to be giving my entire life to this kingdom work. Right? Like every waking hour, moment, like all my energy needs to be towards this and struggling with immaturity and growing up and thinking what that looked like. When I was young, I threw myself into full-time ministry and just believed God would provide from raising support. And I was like 23, right? And just recently married. We didn't have kids yet. So it's easy to do it at that point. And I don't believe, in hindsight, that it was God's will for me, but I was so eager. And even in my ignorance, even in my immaturity, even in just my youthful desire to give it all, God provided every single month, supernaturally. Uh, Michel Pelletier, raise your hand. This is Michel Pelletier. He was going to the vineyard when I had just started this thing, and one time... I was at my brother's house on a Saturday night, and I was telling him, I don't know how I'm paying the, the bills tomorrow. We have our, our mortgage and a car payment, and uh, Melanie just had the baby, so she wasn't able to work. Uh, and he was like, come on, how are you going to pay it? This sounds stupid, Steve. I said, God will provide. I know he will. He's like, God's going to provide you $1,000 between tonight and Monday morning. I said, yeah. He's like, if he does that, I'll come to church with you. And my brother wasn't coming to church at the time. He was, he was as heathen as heathen gets. <clears throat> um, so we woke up. We went to church the next morning. As I'm walking into the church, Michel stops me and says, Hey, Steve, here. And he gives me an envelope. He's like, listen, God, last night I just feel like you told me to do this, so I'm doing it. Here you go. Take the envelope. 
you know, it's rude to open it up and look right in front of the person. So I'm like, oh, thanks, Mitchell. Appreciate it. Don't know what's in it. Sit down in my chair, open it up, check for $1,000. And I was like, uh, my brother's coming to church next week. <laughs> um, uh, side note, he did not come to church. Even though I showed him it, he still didn't come. That's how heathen he was. Okay? But here's my point in that. My point was this. Even in my, now, after a little bit of time, like, literally, my, my marriage was crashing. Everything was crashing because I was going in at 8 in the morning and leaving at 11 at night. Uh, just, like, literally living as if I was single. And I don't think Paul meant that literally when he tells you to do that. Because it, it, we were in trouble. Right, Melanie? Anyway, so the, when we sought counsel, it was with David Midwood, who was a father in the faith and a leader. And he said, Steve, uh, you need to get a job. That's what he told me. Uh, and so I believe it was God. And through that process, lots of identity work was done in my heart by Jesus in this process of feeling like, who am I if I'm not doing ministry full time, right? Um, but what it led me to realize was after a while, realized I was getting a lot more done doing ministry well working than I was as a full time minister. Because honestly, a lot of the time I was there, I just sit in an office that I had no right being in, figuring out what, what should I do? I guess I'll sort some pictures from base camp. Maybe I'll spend this day just scanning in images, right? Um, that was like my day half the time. Uh, but all of that was this, to say this, that God has provided abundantly in my life, my entire life, even while being stupid, even while being smart. It didn't matter the context or the way. He has just always provided, and not just in money, in, in my marriage, he has navigated us through, through grace and through the community, through the body of Christ and that, through my children, through relationships, through everything. He has always provided. And I believe it's because I have always strove, strived, striven, whatever the word is there, <clears throat> to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do I want to be a multimillionaire? Yes. Yes. Is it my primary mover? No. No. If I can make more money on the side, I'm happy to do it. But it is not my prime mover. I will not take a job. I will not take a career. I will not take an opportunity that would cut into the already limited time I have to advance this kingdom in an intentional way. Because I have what I need. I have no ambition in me to have way more than I need so that I can just be wealthy and rich. It's a driving motivation is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that's it. I trust every day that God will provide. When people ask me about this, because, you know, the immature response to what I'm preaching is, well, then why do you still work? Because it's what I believe God has me doing. That's the bottom line. But it doesn't change my motivation. I'm working the job because I believe it's how God has chosen to provide for me and my family right now. And it has provided opportunity for me to help and bless others many, many, many times. And if God chooses to shift that someday, he will. But this is where he has me. But my motivation is this, that that job is providing the support for me to live my life of ministry. Period. That's the difference between a primary mover and not a primary mover. If you are living in a place of stress and worry and anxiety because you need to make more money or you need to advance something, you need to stop and say, what is the driving force behind me needing to do that? 
What's the driving force? Is it a kingdom motivation? Do you feel God has called you to that? If, case, if that's the case, then you should find true fulfillment. You should find true joy, true satisfaction in that, knowing before God you are advancing his kingdom through obedient work. If you do not feel that way, you are doing it wrong. Do you understand? I want to read a few more scriptures because this is what it comes down to. This is what I've always thought and I've always said. People will do for money what they won't do for love. Do you understand? And that's just a true statement in the human heart for most of us. We will do for money what we won't do for love. We will sell the best 40 to 70 hours of our week every week in exchange for money. All of it. And we will do things we would never want to do if it was our own time. And we will do tedious things. We will endure taskmasters. We will endure rude, uh, wicked rulers and leaders and bosses and managers. And we will grin and bear it in exchange for money. And that is the only reason we endure those things. But then you come to a church community where the scriptures that have been spoken to you from heaven, from the God of heaven and earth, tell you to do simple things like honor the leadership God has placed you under. And you're like, well, only if they start being nice to me. Your standards are way different. You'll do for money what you won't do for love. You are motivated by money to endure horrible conditions and terrible stuff that when you come to the community of God and you're part of the family of families under God's structure, you'd be like, well, only if it lines up with exactly how I want things to line up and if I agree completely, then sure, I'll volunteer maybe two hours this week to help out. But what if they offered you the same amount of money your job does? All right, yeah, absolutely. Sounds good to me. Listen, if the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't, don't. That's it. I'm just trying to challenge your motivation. What moves you? Does the love of God and what he's done for you move you enough to respond with those same motives? Listen, a couple more things. Paul rebuked the church for being acting like mere mortals. How, was he, how are they acting like more mere, by mere mortals? By literally living according to the world's system. Dealing with conflict and problems as the world would do it. Approaching their life and their conflict and their decisions and their motivation the same way the world would. And Paul said, stop. It's embarrassing. I say this to your shame that you're acting like mere mortals. <clears throat> right? And I don't see that any more than in this. So look. In Hebrews 10, 32, 39, I'm going to rattle off some scriptures that I've been studying. I've been going through the New Testament. Anyone who follows my uh, Facebook journaling, essentially, <laughs> every morning when I read something cool and God speaks to me, I just post it online. I'm like, man, I don't know if people know this is in the Bible. They need to read this. This is good. In Hebrews 10, 32 to 39, look at what it says here. Remember the earlier days. This is, he's talking to a church that's been struggling with sin. They're a second-generation church. So these people kind of were raised in the faith. And he says this. 
Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way, for you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy, listen to this, you accepted with joy the confiscation of your goods, of all your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So his encouragement saying, this is how you used to live. And he said this, so don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you need endurance. So that after you have done God's will, you may receive the things that have been promised. For in yet a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. My righteous one will live by faith. But if he draws back, my soul will take no pleasure in him. That's what God is saying. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and obtain life. And then he goes on to explain what faith means. He says, now faith, since the righteous will live by this thing, and they will not draw back. The people who live by faith are the ones who can remember the times that they joyfully allowed their possessions to be confiscated for the sake of the gospel. Now in America, that threat isn't really looming. So for us, it's those who are joyfully willing to surrender our possessions for the sake of the gospel. And he says, now faith is the reality of what you hope for, and it's substance of things you're not, that you've not seen. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen has been made from things that are not visible. This is how faith works, guys. It's not blind faith. Blind faith is not in Scripture. You won't find it there anywhere. Faith is the substance of what you hope for. It's evidence of things that you don't see yet. You are saved... Right? The reason why you believe you're saved is because you hope you are. That's it. You've not been saved yet. You sure hope you are, but you're not yet. But faith, the reason why you can put your faith in that hope is because Jesus became the substance of those promises. He became the thing that became evidence that the promises that your salvation are in are real. And therefore, you can put your faith in it, which means you can act that it's real even though you haven't seen it yet. Therefore, we say, I am saved, even though you've not realized it yet. You haven't been saved yet, but you can say, I am saved, because you have faith that Jesus is the substance for the thing you hope for. Okay? Now, when there is a promise in Scripture, you need to look and say, is this unconditional? which there's very few of those guys, okay? The Abrahamic covenant and the promises, those are, are essentially the core of the unconditional promises. Other than that, most of them are conditional. You say, God promises this, if this, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things the Gentiles are pursuing will be given to you. So those of you who are not seeking first the kingdom of God and are struggling with provision and wondering why it's not happening, it's because you've already told God, no thanks, I got this, I'll take care of my own provision. You have not sought first his kingdom. 
You have not sought first the righteousness and the glory and the exaltation of God in your life, and you've allowed fear to become your primary mover. And you've allowed doubt, and you've allowed pride, and you've allowed guilt and shame and most, most, mostly gluttony. You've allowed greed to become a primary mover, and you've allowed your, the enemy to disguise that and say it's need. And therefore, you have no time left to advance the kingdom except a couple hours a week to volunteer for some tasks. Your home has not been converted into a mission center. Your family and your marriage have not been converted into God-honoring mission examples. You just haven't done it. But there's a promise for you that it's there. And if we had a church community here of those who sought first the kingdom of God genuinely, like you woke up every day and your first thought was, I need to get with Jesus because if I don't have his grace, I won't have enough to give for the day. Instead of thinking like, oh, I just woke up, I got to get there early so I'm ready to start my job so I can make more money, so I can promote, impress my boss, so I can get a promotion to make even more money. Sure, it may come with 10 more hours a week of my job, but whatever, more money. Or maybe I need to get down here to develop my business more because I need to get it to a point where I can buy that extra, you know, fleet of boats or I need to buy that extra nice vehicle over here because that's been a goal in my life. I've always wanted that. What? Have those things. Just don't let them be your primary movers. Let them be things that you'd be joyfully willing to allow them to be confiscated for the sake of God being glorified. But if it's a primary mover, then you don't have to go far to wonder why you're not seeing the things of God happen in your life and in your family. <clears throat> Later in this chapter, in verse 24 to 27, he says this. By faith, this is the whole chapter. After he said, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Right? And he said, the righteous will live by faith. So after this, he gave an entire chapter as an example of what he means by faith. And so he goes on to say this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since his attention was on the reward. By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for he persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. That is such a, a prime moving text for me. And everything that that means, that he persevered as one who could actually see the one who's invisible. That encapsulates faith right there. That is a man of faith. He acted. His life demonstrated the things you would expect to see from someone who could see that God was real. Do you understand? His actions demonstrated the expected fruit of someone who has seen God and knows that he is real and knows that he is the reward. That is, how, that is why Moses was able to give up the, the princehood that he had and the wealth of Egypt in exchange for suffering as a slave. There's no other reason to do that. In Hebrews 13, 
5 through 7. It says, your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid, for what can man do to me? Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. Man, don't miss that. Do not lead. Do not follow a leader that you don't want to imitate. Do you understand? He is literally saying, hey, guys, this is all in one passage. Your life should be free from the love of money. In other words, don't let it be your prime mover. Do not let money be your prime mover. Then he says, be satisfied with what you have, because that is what God has provided for you. That's why he says, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You hear what he's saying? He's saying you should be willing to be satisfied with what you have, because Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. We don't tie those two together. We think, I know Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. He's my emergency ripcord. But man, I got I to gotta make more. I got to do more. I got I to gotta have more of this. And God is saying, if I wanted you to have more, you'd have more. But I'm trying to get you to just seek first the kingdom here, bud. That's my goal here. You're still in training. I can't entrust you with the wealth of the kingdom yet. When I see that you're primarily moved by the kingdom and you're serving the work of God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then maybe I will give you more to serve with. And remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. That's the point, guys. Carefully observe. You want to carefully observe the leadership we have here? Do it. But when you see what they've done and how they've done it, be imitators of it. When you see how they're living their life, and if you feel the fruit of the kingdom is being produced, and that's fruit you want to see in your life, fine. Imitate it. Give your life to it. Throw your life at this thing. Be willing to make less money to have more time to seek first the kingdom. See what God has put in front of you as that. Now, let me bring it to the close here. In 1 Peter... 5, 1 through 7. It's a lot of scripture, but I just love throwing the scripture out there because it's like you can't argue with it. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 7. Let me make sure I wrote down the right verse. First Peter 5, yes, I'm in chapter 1. All right, First Peter 5, 1 through 7. Therefore, as a fellow elder, this is Peter writing to a church, and he's trying to encourage them to, uh, to serve God, to let the kingdom of God be their primary motivation in their life. And he says, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah, and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort you elders among you, shepherd God's flock, do not do this overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will. Not for the money, but eagerly. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
Likewise, you younger men, be subject to the elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, because he cares about you. Hear what he's saying? He's telling these leaders and these people of God, those who are going to be shepherds of souls, which should be all of us. And I want to get to that point. I have this summary point here, but it really sums it up. But the point is, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower on this earth, you are called to be a shepherd. And he makes it very clear, guys, do this not out of compulsion, but freely because it's God's will, not for the money, which back then certain elders were paid for what they did, even in the early church. And he's saying, that is not your primary motivation for what you do. You're already doing it, and God saw fit to provide for you doing it in that way. But it shouldn't shift your motivation or the reason why you drive. And he says this, because God cares for you. And in 2 Peter 1, 2-11, there's this list where God is saying, hey, to your faith, add these things. It's a whole list of things you're supplementing it with. To your faith. Because faith is not where it ends. You want to end it? Read in James 2, 14 through 26. It's this rubber meets the road thing, and it's the last verse I'm going to read to you. <coughs> James 2, 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? Now listen, I want you to understand this. James is using faith in the way that his audience has misunderstood it. And there's been lots of theological conflict all over not understanding this, thinking that James is at, at conflict against Paul, where Paul is like, we're saved by faith, and James is like, can you be saved by just faith? The scripture is not contradicting. James is talking to his audience, using the word faith in the way that they have misunderstood it, and he's challenging it. And it's a way we have misunderstood it here. How do I know? Because I see the level of involvement as a body we have in the kingdom. And it needs to go up. It needs to go up. And it can't go up by, by just needing to check boxes or impress men. It has to be going up by your primary motivation, which is that you have been loved by a God relentlessly. Therefore, love relentlessly. And let that be your primary mover. Do you understand? You have to be moving and spending your life for the right reason. And that's what it all comes down to. So he says this. <clears throat> what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have the works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? <clears throat> in the same way, faith if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, as if you're working as a team that way, right? Well, I have the faith and you have the works. That's how it'll work. And he says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. Now listen, that's the coolest phrase in the scripture sometimes, right? But you need to understand what he's saying. He's not just throwing some cool meme-worthy quote. He's saying faith 
without the works that prove you actually have that faith, is dead. And he's saying, you believe that God is who he says he is? You do well. But guess what? The bar that you just reached is the bar the demons are at. They also believe that God is. And they have a corresponding work to prove it. They shudder. They tremble in response to what their faith says. That's what James is saying. Even the demons believe that God is real, but at least they show works to prove it. When there are so many of us in the church claiming to be followers of Christ who say we believe he is, but don't even demonstrate those works. Don't even shudder. Don't tremble at the fact that he's real. We make ourselves Lord while claiming he is Lord. And it makes our faith empty. And there's no power for it to save us. Which is why James challenges that thought. <clears throat> he says, foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? You want to talk about a primary mover? Stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with that statement. And just let the scripture search your heart and say, wow, is my primary mover the same as Abraham's? That he was willing to sacrifice the son that was the actual fulfillment of the promise he had put his faith in. Meaning that not even the promises were the primary mover for Abraham, but instead his loyalty and his allegiance to the lordship of God in his life. He says, you see that faith was active together with his works. And by works, faith was perfected. So the scripture was then fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Do you see that? So many of us think that God, Abraham was considered righteous because he just believed what God said. And that's true, but it's bigger. It's his works that demonstrated the proof that he did believe it. And that's where he got his righteousness from. And it hasn't changed till today. So I wrote down this note, guys, in my notes. Summed up. We are meant to be the natural leaders on this earth as the ones moved by real and eternal purpose. A hope that only we have, driven by faith in what is really real. Do you understand? I wrote that when I was thinking about the world is pursuing their goals and their agendas and their, 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 their treasures. And it shows us where their heart is. Clear and simple. But they are empty. They are pursuing fruitless goals and unsatisfying things, which is why the highest suicide rate is among the wealthy. It's empty. Can you imagine how you must feel if you realize you spent your whole life pursuing and storing something out that you eventually realized was empty and meaningless? What do you have to live for after that? And the world is looking for that meaning and purpose. Imagine if they found a church on the earth that was living with this vibrant purpose this eternal weight of glory that motivated them, this knowledge of God that transformed them and changed the way they lived so that they were living upside-down lives according to the world's standards. 
Paul said this once. He said, we live as those who own nothing but possess everything. We've, what he's saying is we've not invested our most important things into this life, but we live as if we possess everything we need. Now imagine if our church, if the Crossing Life Church and all our, our network partners and everyone lived that way. What if we lived? What if we lived truly primarily moved by the will of God in seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? What if pursuing what we need was the necessary second motivation? And it was only done according to how God was providing for us and how he was choosing to do it. And instead, we were living primarily according to the scriptures and the purpose and the call of God in our lives. What if we decided not to wait until we had enough to retire on to pursue the things we believe God is burning in our hearts to live for? What would happen? What would be the consequence? Go ahead, think about that in your head for a second. And if fear jumps in, remind yourself, oh, that was fear. What if we actually believed that God would provide for us as we pursued what we believe he wants us to pursue? What if we messed up, we made a mistake, and we thought it was what God wanted us to pursue, but it turns out it wasn't, and we lost a lot of money over it? What's the worst thing that could happen? I can tell you from my experience that God provides even when you make dumb mistakes, if those mistakes are done in pursuit of what the kingdom is, of what you believe God wants you to do. Guys, what if you didn't have enough to, to retire on a lake in a golf course? What's the worst that could happen? What if we actually believed like Moses did that Jesus in obedience to him and seeking his kingdom first was the reward that was most worthy, that was most valuable. I can tell you this, we'd be doing a lot more that looked like the kingdom and a lot less that looked like pursuing our own needs and comfort. Now just to, to give my disclaimers, so that there's not like a hundred text messages on my phone when I'm done. I am not saying money is evil or bad. It is neutral. It's a tool. That's it. It's a tool. But the love of money is evil. And the love of money is at opposite ends of the love of God. And you cannot serve two masters. You need to choose which one you're going to serve. And your life will look very different depending on which one you choose. Do you understand that? It will look very different. If you say you choose God over money and your life doesn't change or doesn't look different, you may not have chosen the right master. Money can be used for so much good and God uses it as a tool and he gives. The Bible says that the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. Which is why God says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because the righteous will use the wealth for God's glory. To see the whole earth filled with his glory. To see the knowledge of God full from the east to the west. This is what it will be used for. But he knows our hearts. And so if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he'll give us what we need. The second disclaimer is, what you need may not look like what you think you need. 
You may think you need three cars. You probably don't. Would it be harder to get around with one? Yep. You may think you need this when really you need this. Right? When you think about what you need, think about this, that there have been many, many, many people who have gone before you who have lived lives that the Bible says the world was not worthy of. And those people died in caves. They died homeless. They died from the elements. They died from so many different ways. And God lifts them up and he gives those people glory for eternity. And he says that the world was not worthy of those people. Why? Because they died on mission. And God gave them everything they needed for their mission. And that can look very different than what we think. When you're like, oh, if God sends me over to uh, Afghanistan on mission, he'll protect me. Maybe he won't. Maybe he's called you over there as a sleep, led to the, as a sheep led to the slaughter. And from your slaughter, thousands of salvations come forth, but you're dead, so you don't see that. God provided for you in that call. I'm just saying, that's a hard chat. I don't want to go down that rabbit trail. But what I want to make sure you get from this is this. The challenge of what moves you. What actually moves you. Okay? When there's a call from the church for more leaders and for more help, and you inside, you know that you have skill. You have leadership ability. You have capacity. You've demonstrated it. And you don't answer the call. Why? I want you to be able to search your heart and your motives and say, why don't you answer that call? Why don't you do this? Why aren't you making yourself available? Why aren't you available? When you say, I can't be available, what are the things that keep you from being able to be available? What is the pursuit that is holding you back? Because if it was seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that's the priority, then you'd probably find more time. You'd find more ability, more capacity. So, bottom line is, I'm not your judge. We're not your judge. Only God is your judge. So when you make decisions like this, you don't do it with the thought, oh, well, they're going to think it's just an excuse. Who cares? Who cares what any man thinks? Your concern should be when you stand before God on judgment day, and he says, what were the obstacles? Will you be able to be justified in your response or not? Because there are going to be some who will stand before God saying, God, I was too busy casting out demons in your name. I was too busy healing the sick and doing all these things. And he says to those people, depart from me, you rebellious ones. I never knew you. Because your works won't save you. But your obedient pursuit of the kingdom and his righteousness is what will demonstrate that you believe in him and that's what saves you. So again, last thing, what moves you? Let that resonate. Matter of fact, take a couple minutes right now and just let the beginning of the search start. This is just the initiation of the search, right? Because this search needs to go on for your whole week in devotion time where you're asking God, what moves me? Am I moved by a love for who you are and your glory? or something else. God, we just ask right now that you would do what only you can do. God, that as we wrestle through this thought today in our hearts and through the week and in our life groups when we gather and meet God, that you would allow the Spirit to find those things in our hearts that need to be found. 
to awaken those things that need to be awakened, to expose the things that need to be exposed, that our lives would be spent for your glory and for your kingdom, and that there'd be an increasing grace on every one of our lives to be able to do that, to daily die to the flesh and the things that so easily ensnare us in order to look forward and see your glory as our, as our reward, to see your name lifted up, to see those who see your name lifted up come to you in flocks that as thousands and thousands of souls come into your kingdom, God, we'd be ready as ones who have laid our lives down to, to, to do the work. So God, beyond any words that I've said, God, I just ask that you would speak to each heart that needs to be spoken to what needs to be spoken. That you would move in the hearts of each person here as necessary. God, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you do what you say you do. And you hold the hearts of kings in your hand and you turn them whichever way you want. How much more so our hearts, God. And we give you permission now to turn them right now in the direction you would turn them. God, we give you permission to evict whichever Lord has been on the throne in our heart, God, and take your rightful place there. And to begin to rule from that place. God, that we'd have eyes to see the depth of your love, that we'd be rooted and grounded in that love so that together with everyone we could see what is the height and depth and length and width of this love, God, and that that would move us to action. Guys, just do it right now. Just commit in your mind right now. I'm going to set these next three minutes. I know, small amount, three minutes to just search me, God. What are my motivations? Where does it need to change? Give me the grace to make that change. A change of focus, a change of paradigm, a change of approach to this life that's left. If we could have the prayer teams come up right now, just be ready. the elders, deacons, life group leaders, normal prayer team guys, come on up. You can search your hearts up here until someone comes and then you lay your life down for them. Right now, guys, three minutes search and let God speak. And if he points something out and you're like, that's going to be hard, come up for prayer. When two or three are gathered together, he's present. God is here with us. And let the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous people avail much in your heart today.